Hello and welcome back to the Kielder Observatory podcast. I'm Ian Brannan and through this episode we're going to talk through what you can expect to see in the night sky through April 2021 and it's a special month because there's lots of meteorite action with the Lyrid meteor shower at the back end of April and we're going to speak to a couple of people who know a lot about meteorites and hopefully give you some tips on how you yourself could turn yourself into a meteorite hunter. I'm going to be joined by Anya O'Brien, who was part of the search team looking for that meteorite from Winchcombe in Gloucestershire uh, earlier this year at the back end of February, and she actually found some of the fragments of it that made the news. And we're also going to speak to another expert in the meteorite field, Steve Arnold, known as one of the meteorite men. You might have seen his TV show, uh, but he has lots of experience looking for meteorites, not just in the United States, but all around the world as well employing the old taste test is a good one in the field too you can tell if a meteorite is poo or a meteorite is by tasting it let's have a look though of what's happening at kielder observatory through the month of april and you may not be surprised to hear that things unfortunately are still fairly quiet what with the ongoing restrictions but hopefully better news on the horizon as we get towards may to tell us what is happening uh, both online and uh, at the observatory in general and things that you can see in the night sky over the coming weeks i'm joined by the director of astronomy at kielder observatory dan pye and astronomer and science communicator at kielder observatory Naz Jahan Shahi. And Naz, you've got a little feature where you're online on Facebook and um, you're taking the night sky into people's homes. Yeah, absolutely. So we, we're now running this feature called The Night Sky with Naz. Um, and every week I just give a particular object for people to look for in the sky. And they're usually, you know, stuff that you can see with your with your naked eye. You don't need a telescope or, or things like that. So, um, yeah, so, so far we've done how you can find Mars and how you can find the brightest star in the sky, Sirius. And I think this week I'm going to be doing how to find the North Star because it's obviously a really good navigation point. So, um, in future weeks when I say, you know, you go from the North Star and you, you find this from that, um, people know where they're looking. But yeah, just to give people something to, to look for from their back gardens. Which is fantastic. Of course, people struggling to get out at the moment to actually uh, go to any observatory, let alone uh, Kielder. But um, uh, that is one way that you can learn more about the night sky from your own back garden, Night Sky with Naz. Um, Dan Pye of um, Kielder Observatory, Director of Astronomer fame. Um, tell us about what's happening at the observatory now, because clearly things still close now. Fingers crossed we're still on track for May for things to uh, to reopen, May 17th onwards. Uh, you should be um, back in business as, as many places are looking forward to reopening their doors fully um, in this kind of sector. What is the latest and what are your preparations uh, and expectations for that? Yeah, I hope so. Um, and yeah, we're very hopeful that we're going to be able to meet that as well, I think. Um, there, there will still be reduced numbers for now. I think we're going to start to address that as the year goes on. Currently, what we've done is we've projected that we're going to be on reduced capacity for the rest of the year. So events are selling out very, very quickly now i think we're um almost sold out of aurora events for example for the entire year so if you're looking to book an event now is certainly the time to do that if we do up the capacity we might um then um, be able to offer some more tickets for sale on some of these events as the year goes on but as it stands we're sticking with the capacity that we've got and that's what we're projected to deliver on 
And uh, tell us about some of the sessions that you do have lined up, um, all things being equal and happening as planned. Uh, what is going to be uh, on the agenda come uh, May and, and into June? Because of course you're getting the you're getting getting the uh, shorter nights, I suppose. By then, that's the only thing. But um, there's plenty lined up. Yeah, there is, um, and we still run our late night events during the summertime as well. We just changed the style that we run, that we run the event for. We run a late night explorer all the way through the summer period, um, which is great because you come in at literally the darkest point of the night, and of course the summertime we do experience much less clouds, so there's much cha- but much better chance of being able to get a clear night. And when we do get a clear night, it's not that we can't see anything because there is lots of bright things in the sky during the summertime that we get to see. Um, so it's always worth um, coming along during the summer even though it is those later night uh, lighter nights sorry and we always strive to give that uh, that experience that keeled a moment deliver on that and every event that we run as well so even if the sky was cloudy or if it was raining or if it was that it was just too bright we still give that keeled observatory experience and that feel that you would get during a, a clear night experience as well Okay, so in the meantime, um, clearly get online and, and look for the sessions and get uh, get booking away and um, don't miss out on your chance for when things do reopen. But what things are we looking forward to uh, over the course of April in the night sky that people can be looking out for? Well, the big thing that we're going to be talking about, I guess, um, for April is the Lyrids Meteor Shower, which is the one, it's one of the nicest meteor showers of the year because it produces some really, really bright meteors occasionally. Um, it's not so much of an active meteor shower. We do get ones which are more active throughout the rest of the year, but it is nevertheless still a, a pretty spectacular display is the, is the Lyrids. The problem with this year is that it is approaching the week of full moon, so we might not get to see some of the the dimmer meteors as a result of of the moon and the light pollution that causes but um, hopefully we'll be able to see some some really really nice ones and uh, it's produced by uh, a beautiful comet a comet called thatcher which was discovered in in um, in 1861 um, and that's what's producing this meteor shower for us that little debris trail that thatcher's left as it's made its way around the solar system we're now passing through that and as we pass through that we'll experience the the, the, the radiant point from the direction of Lyra, uh, which is a beautiful constellation. Um, it's supposed to be a harp. Uh, it's a lovely constellation, is Lyra. And it's got a lovely star called uh, Vega in it. Um, and Vega, if you remember the 90s film Contact, um, that's where... Um, that's where the signal came from in in, in the film Contact. <laughs> See, every day is a school day. And, of course, um, very soon we're going to be hooking up with Steve Arnold, one of the meteorite men from the TV, and uh, Anya O'Brien, who was part of that team that searched for the meteorite that fell at Winchcombe in, uh, in Gloucestershire uh, not so long ago. You'll see on the news. She was one of the people that was on the news, in fact, uh, with, uh, with a piece of this meteorite. So talking a lot more detail about meteorites very soon. And some tips for you if you want to be a meteorite hunter as well. So some great stuff on the way uh, very soon. Um, just a couple of other little bits to talk about that's uh, happening at the Kielder Observatory at the moment Naz, um, you've got something that people can buy. Um, yeah, so we are currently selling a limited edition print. So there is a limited number of these, but we're selling a beautiful print of the Rosette Nebula. It's this really lovely red nebula. Um, and we're selling those for £29.95. You can order those on our website. And £5 of each print goes to Comic Relief. 
So do a bit for charity, get something nice to hang on your wall, um, and that is uh, available kielderobservatory.org if you want more information. And, of course, don't forget to check out NASA's uh, Night Sky with NAS videos that uh, are always online at Facebook. They're uh, Facebook Live videos at the time but they are still saved so you can catch up on some things to look out for in the night sky and from night sky with naz to the rival feature pie in the sky with director of astronomy dan pie who's uh, going to give you something a little bit more advanced to search for um dan what are we looking for this month we're going to the constellation of cancer um which is a, a beautiful constellation it's got some incredible things inside it in fact it is home to the golden eye cluster which is my favorite named cluster of stars but we don't want to have a look at that one because it's um, very small and very dim and it's going to be too much of a challenge. So instead, we'll go with the Beehive Cluster, which is right in the middle of the constellation of Cancer. Um, the Beehive Cluster is also called M44. You're going to need Stellarium probably in order to be able to locate this one out. A pair of binoculars, um, unless you've got a really good dark sky. In fact, you want to get somewhere as dark as possible to really be able to see this one in all its glory. You might just be able to see it from some uh, from some uh, more light polluted areas but it is a reasonably dim thing to see nevertheless what you should be able to see is um, a cluster an open cluster of stars that looks like bees uh, buzzing around a hive apparently um, <laughs> I, I just think it looks like a nice collection of stars and you can see it with it with the naked eye as well actually if you go to a dark sky park if you came to Kielder you'd be able to see it with a naked eye so there we are that's my my one for this week High in the sky for April. And don't forget, you can keep up to date with uh, everything that's happening in the night sky, even though people aren't allowed uh, there to visit just yet. Uh, we do have um, people up at the observatory from time to time sharing images as they happen. Uh, follow us on various social medias, including on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Search for Kielder Observatory. Give us a follow and don't miss a thing. And hopefully very soon we can welcome you back in person as well, which we're all looking forward to. You're listening to the Kielder Observatory podcast. Our main feature this month is on meteorites. As we move through the course of April, as we get towards the back end of April, the Lyrid meteor shower will be increasingly visible across the UK. But not so long ago, we had for the first time in 30 years a meteorite recovered in the UK. Thousands of people reported seeing a blazing light rushing across the sky at around 5 to 10 in the evening on Sunday the 28th of February. Crucially, the event was also captured on an array of special cameras operated by the UK Fireball Alliance. One of the people who was involved in that team, both with the cameras and searching for fragments of the meteorite, is Anya O'Brien, and she joins us in a few moments. First of all, though, we're going to speak to one of the stars of a TV programme that you may be familiar with called The Meteorite Men. And one of The Meteorite Men is Steve Arnold, and he's travelled the world looking for rare samples of meteorites that have come crashing through the universe and uh, ending up here on planet earth and he's going to tell us all about his adventures and some tips for you if you fancy being a meteorite hunter yourself during the lyrid meteor showers which are uh, coming up you never know you might find something hello steve tell us all about your adventures because this is quite a unique role isn't it that you've got of being a meteorite hunter it has been a very fun life journey 
uh, uh, trying to meet up with these uh, messengers from space that are trying to meet up with us. So it's been a fun, fun time. Oh, and tell us about some of the locations that you've visited through the course of, of this, because you've been to some outstanding locations around the world, haven't you? It's been it's been a, a really interesting uh, a trip through the old passport there. Yeah. Um, all over the place uh, for the television series alone, we went to uh, the world's driest desert, the Atacama in Chile, uh, to the outback of Australia, north of the Arctic Circle in Sweden. We've been over to Russia and Poland, up um, into Canada, and all over the U.S. So it, that um, that has been. Um, part uh, of, of, of my uh, work, uh, a lot of my other travels have been, um, you know, more on my schedule and, or on, on a, a fresh Witness Falls schedule. You know, something pops in from outer space and it's like, ooh, ooh do I go, do I go? Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I've been, I've been fortunate to find meteorites on six different continents so far. It's pretty impressive. How, how did this journey begin? How did you get involved in, in looking for meteorites in the first place? It, it was all Indiana Jones's fault, to be honest. Um, <laughs> Isn't everything? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, this idea of, of being a treasure hunter. Um, I, I just wish the museums would pay for everything I found. That's that's the one thing I haven't quite got down yet. And, and that whip, I can't quite do the whip thing. But um, <laughs> yeah, this idea of of traveling and finding things, and and it was an accident. I I was uh, doing some research on where to metal detect um, and ran across this old story from the 1800s of this lady who had found a meteorite and then sold it and it kind of got I went what wait a minute she sold it for money back in the 1800s maybe they're worth money now and and I think they've got metal in them and so maybe you know and did a little bit of follow-up and sure enough they are worth money sure enough the uh, some have metal in them and i started hunting for them and finding them and selling them and it was like hey this is better than getting a real job <laughs> for sure and then getting a tv series out of it as well of course that's the uh, that's the crowning um cherry on the cake isn't it but how do how would you recommend then that people get started looking for uh, for meteorites is this something that you can do wherever in the world you are that you may be listening to this there are some places that are a little easier to hunt than others um so uh, you know you can you can have a more of an advantage and more of a realistic opportunity to find anything but there's there's um you know, for the most part, you're you're one of three ways. You go to an area where a new meteorite just fell. A fireball's been reported. Maybe you saw it. Other people saw it. Um, you want to go look for um, small or maybe larger, but, but even when there's larger, there's also usually small pieces nearby. Um and, and you want to go to the fall zone, the strewn field, and, and look for pieces. The, the second way is to go to places that, where meteorites have been found, you know, maybe historically, maybe 50 or 100 years ago, um, 
and where there's a good chance there's more of what's already been found. And then the third way is just a cold find where you're going out in an area and th those are areas where uh, the, the terrain is going to be very favorable, where, where you're just looking uh, for uh, on the surface of the ground rocks that may have been sitting there for uh, tens of thousands, in some cases, millions of years. And so those are the three ways. And yeah, it, it's not rocket science. Um, there's, there's things to learn about doing each one of those ways of hunting. There's, there's some strategy and, and uh, but a little bit of research and you can uh, uh, teach yourself what to, what to do. And then, uh, then it's a matter of getting off the couch and getting out there and, and hunting. And tell us what it's like to find a really rare meteorite, you know, something that has crash landed, it's been travelling for millions of years through space, and it, it finds its way into your hands. What is that like? Well, um, you know, I, to, I would refer people to YouTube and to check out some of the uh, recorded episodes of, of our old Meteorite Men show. Now, let me be a little honest. Um, some of the times when Jeff and I would get excited about finding a rock, it wasn't so much finding the rock as, as much as it was, oh, finally, we found a rock and now we can wrap the show and go to the next place, you know, because <laughs> the producers wanted us to find something. So um, sometimes our enthusiasm was, was not just the rock, but it just was like, finally, we can get out of here. But th that those um those episodes really showed it and sometimes you know you are worn out and then there's other times that that um you know the adrenaline kicks in and then you're you're on a real high and then you want to just keep hunting for more and more so it's it's uh, it's a treasure hunt uh, i'll tell you one thing for me though i i as much as i enjoy hunting for and finding meteorites i it I enjoy even more being with someone when they find their first meteorite, and um, it, it's uh, it's it borders on a, a spiritual religious experience for some people, and it's really a wonderful thing to be able to share that with others. Joining us in this episode also is Anya O'Brien, who is um, a PhD student at Glasgow University, but from the northeast and studying organic compounds in Martian meteorites. Now, before we talk about your meteorite adventures, Anya, it was um, Kielder Observatory was was kind of where it all started for you. So I'm actually from the northeast originally. I grew up in Newcastle, and like my kind of whole career sort of started in a way on a school trip to Kielder Observatory when I was just finishing high school um so you guys played a non-zero part in my my career trajectory uh, excuse the pun pun there um was yeah I was brought there on a Friday night visit um by my high school science teacher um when I was 17 18 about to leave and go off to uni and yeah it was a really wonderful wonderful evening and I'll never really forget it so it's a lovely it was lovely to be asked back because you guys really did inspire me to go on this path. 
Well, it's a fantastic story and, and um, great to show what a what a trip to Kielder Observatory can, can lead to. And uh, it led you to the search for meteorites. Obviously, you mentioned that you're, you're studying them at university and you're a bit of an expert in uh, particularly Martian meteorites. But you were out searching across the Gloucestershire countryside when the um, British meteorite landed um, all those weeks ago. And um, part of the search party that was successful in finding a piece. Tell us about your adventures there. My research group up in Glasgow um, was one of the well we were one of the main teams that actually set up the camera network across the UK that allowed the fireball to be tracked and therefore the strewn field i.e the area it was likely to fall to have been constrained so thanks to the fireball network uh, which was set up by University of Glasgow and Imperial um, Basically, we had a sort of four kilometer long line with a sort of 400 meter distance either side of this is where this thing should be. So we found we had that by the Wednesday after the fireball was on the Sunday night. So on that Wednesday, I got a phone call from my colleague Luke to basically say, pack your bags, you're driving to Gloucestershire, which is six hours away <laughs> tonight. So um, after many, many um, health and safety approvals, through the university to allow us to travel that far. Uh, obviously, it is work as we're meteorite scientists. So, um, yeah, so we had five days in the field search. This was because, yes, there was by this point the piece on the front on the driveway that made all the headlines was found, but the fireball had been seen to fragment. So we knew there were other pieces around. Um, the model told us there was about a kilo's worth across Gloucestershire in this kind of strewn field area. Um, but only about 300 grams had been found from that driveway. So we knew there was more to be found. So, um, yeah, it was a wonderful thing to be part of anyway, but let alone in a pandemic when I hadn't seen any of my friends or colleagues for over a year to get to spend five days in the field and then to find a piece. So we were um, searching Thursday, Thursday through Monday and on the Saturday, so in the middle of it, um, by this point, there was only four of us left on the search when at one point there was about 20. Um, so that Saturday morning, we were on the land of a really posh estate. That's one thing I've learned is, gosh, the area around Cheltenham is so fancy. <laughs> and so you found this. And what, what was your thought when you found it? Because probably a bit of disbelief, I would have thought that is, is this really it? Yeah, um, it was funny because it was a field full of sheep poo. Um, and uh. <laughs> in fact, most of the fields in Gloucestershire, it turns out, are full of poo that looks like meteorites, which is, turns out sheep poo is really, yeah, a very good meteorong. So um, we had spent three days picking up poo and realising it was poo and not a meteorite. So then that Saturday morning, it was actually um, my colleague Luke, it was his girlfriend who joined us on that Saturday. So she'd come down to Gloucestershire to help with the driving of their car because they're a household. So she was allowed to come because it wasn't adding any extra household into the mix. Um, but she'd been working from home in the hotel during the week. But on the Saturday, she was dead keen to join us. Um, and obviously, like I said, most people had left by that Saturday. So we were in a line of four. We were kind of, it's a bit like a forensic search. You're all in a straight line, handily or socially distanced anyway. And you're just going up and down with GPSs covering the strewn field. And She'd said, oh, I think I found one eight times in a row within the first hour. And every single one was a poo. So it got to this ninth thing. And she was like, said this inner monologue of, do I say anything? Oh, I'm going to, I keep disrupting them because they're all the scientists and I'm not. And she was like, no, no, I think it is a rock. So she said, 
hey Luke and he came over and straight away it was so obvious and it was actually the only properly intact piece because every other bit that's found was found by locals on their driveways and gardens and things had fragmented up but this was like a solid um sort of I don't know 200 gram piece which was even with the fusion crust so the markings from when it came through the atmosphere and everything intact and um, and yeah we were so excited we were squealing um it was weird because we couldn't go to the pub <laughs> so <which> you <laughs> definitely celebrate. want to do <laughs> i think that picture that was released with the press release and everything that was everywhere with that headline was just it i think that spoke volumes because you could see the emotion on your face um, it was almost <laughs> like the other fellow was proposing to you with a meteorite oh, yeah. so that was <laughs> so that was when i first arrived on the thursday and they'd collected some from the driveway and it was the first morning where we were all gathering together to like plan the search. And yeah, I just rocked up in this car block and yeah, I got shown this bag out of nowhere and, and uh, yeah, I was bowled over and that was just seeing a bag of it that someone else had found. Um, and yeah, that picture all over the BBC in the end, because it is just pure joy. Well, it uh, sounds like a cracking idea for a series, Meteorite or Poo, uh, you know, just... <laughs> Sort of, sort of Steve, thing. That's that your next one. Nature has a way of of throwing distractions out, and and it's kind of ironic how you can end up in in the middle of 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 nowhere, and you go, oh my goodness, this is the best place to go hunt, and there will be something, an outcropping of natural earth rock that just blends right in, or all of a sudden there's you know, brush that will hide stuff. So yeah, um, employing the old taste test is a good one in the field too. You can tell if a meteorite is poo (laughs) or a meteorite is by tasting it. But you probably want to keep this pristine because it, it's a carbonaceous um, chondrite there with a, the extra, um, you know, you don't you don't want the extra uh, organics added yes, to it. Yes, so, you certainly don't. Yeah. Especially, that's what I study. So I'm now, I've already started my experiments on this meteorite just this week now because uh, I look at organic mastering meteorites. So I've been, today I've been in the lab running solvents through a crushed piece of Winchcombe, the meteorite, um, to basically try and dissolve any organics in there. And yeah, it's going to be interesting because I've got to work out what's what's any sheep poo and what's actually, you know, native. <laughs> yes. And through the course of your tests that you've done, relatively early days, of course, but what have you found so far from your research that you've done on this meteorite that you collected at the end of February? So um, within the first few days, the isotopes ratios were done, which means you can work out what classification of meteorite it is. So we think it's a type of carbonaceous chondrite called a CM chondrite, um, which you can find out from basically the ratios of the different oxygen isotopes in there. However, there's some pretty interesting stuff um, going on. It kind of seems like there's two main lithologies, which is a posh word for saying kind of different minerals or different kind of patterns of structures and things going on in there that it might be a bit of a mishmash of two main types of meteorite um which would kind of explain in terms of my experiments i have been working with two different fragments so one piece of my one fragment i've been working with was from the driveway piece that was all over the news and then one was from that sheep field and the piece from the driveway was much much more difficult to crush like i have this adorable tiny mortar and pestle which is just yeah adorable little thing um, and it's so ultra strong and really tough. And the, the bit from the driveway was so much harder to get 
crushed than the bit from the field. So, and I chatted about it with colleagues and maybe it's because there's two different types of kind of rock in there. Maybe one bit's been really heat, one of, one of the host asteroids was heated and it smashed into another and that's why we've got two different things going on. Um, in terms of the organic matter in there, um, there's a, quite a few steps we've got to go through until we actually find out what we've got. At the moment, I'm just dissolving lots of different solvents that would dissolve different types of molecules, like some that would dissolve alcohol, some that would dissolve amino acids, that kind of thing. And then in a couple of weeks' time, I'll be running it through a fancy mass spectrometer machine, which will basically chuck out of it, here are all the organic molecules uh, in your sample. Um, and I'll be comparing that literally to bits of the poo in the soil to work out what's earth-based and what's uh, space-based organic matter sounds fantastic and 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 steve i mean what happens when you find the the meteorites that that uh, that you found in the past what happens to them once you've once you've collected them well there's several different courses um as as there's some meteorites are were and I like to tell people this that the meteorites are basically worthless except for the information they contain, as you can tell here. And he's going through this this um, this excitement of figuring out okay what can be done to test this and whatnot. Most meteorites are quite boring, um, and and. You know, and there's always something to look for, and there's some preliminary testing that's done on all for the general classification. But then um, it's it always springs up. You know, uh, you answer one question, and then there's five more questions that come out of that. You you choose where where to chase it, um, and so uh, there in the collecting world and and I and I put museums in there and some research facilities they they have a, a mission to acquire and collect and hold they may not be doing research you know currently but in the future they might and and sometimes it's just preserving it for other researchers who may be off kind of on their own you know little they, they don't have to be giant institutions um, you know someone can follow and they'll need a, a type sample or they'll need a thin section to to examine and and it's nice that there's these repositories that are holding and preserving this material also technology advances over time we're able to do things now that we weren't able to do 5 10 20 50 years ago so places need to 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 hold them but also private individuals hold them and collect many of the the large institutions a majority if not everything they have was once owned by private people who later, you know, and, and we kind of joke eventually everything gets to museums anyway. And so um, the the museums uh, will will sometimes buy, it's tough, they, they don't have budgets um, to purchase. M many of them don't. Um, you know, their, their money is, is earmarked for other things. And so, but they, they'll oftentimes have an inventory of um, amazing things. That's kind of overkill. You don't need a whole lot. Um, sometimes just a, a, a little a grams worth of something will give you um, everything you need. But like in, in the example here, um, two different rocks appearing to have different, um, uh, compositions and so um, and, and there's they're probably a blend of it but you know it's it, it's it's like you know 
well, here in the U.S., I don't know about you guys, we have Rocky Road ice cream, and it has different chunks of stuff in it. And so one bite That is an excellent different. analogy. Excellent <laughs> yeah. Analogy. <laughs> and, and then, and when you're dealing with very small pieces, you know, something can easily be redundant, or all of a sudden it's like, whoa, this is freaky different than that one over here. So um, anyway, institutions oftentimes, I mean, if they have kilos of material, then then they'll say, oh, here, we'll give you a piece of this for a piece of that. And institutions trade amongst themselves a lot because they found it's, it's easier for rocks to travel than it is for researchers to travel to the rocks. And so, um, uh, you know, if it's at the very beginning, if it's the first piece, then uh, there is a priority to get it classified. Uh, it's There's selfish as well as uh, um, noble reasons to do that. You're, you're contributing to science with that information, but it also is telling you what the material is and where there, where there might be um, interest in other people to acquire some and to be able to kind of determine a, a financial value if um, if someone is wanting to to sell it or if they're going to donate it. Oftentimes, uh, you know, here in the U.S., you can get a tax write-off for donation. So establishing a value in a donation is, is beneficial. So, um it, it a little depends on if it's the first piece or if it's subsequent pieces that, that go after. But there is a collector marker out there, and um, they, um, you know, a lot of fields, there, there's this kind of this animosity. There's a, a, a competition, and and there's a little bit with, with meteorites, but far nicer than a lot of other fields as far as working together. And uh, there's a lot of the collectors who are, are eager and willing to donate or loan things to science for research. So it's, it's a fun thing. It doesn't have to be either or. It can, everybody can enjoy it. And like this is a great example, you know, uh, field work, which is seldom done by researchers. It's, it's tough for them to get out of, um, out of their institutions or, at, you know, if they're teaching or if they're doing projects or if they're curating museums for them to get up and leave, it's tough. Um, and so most meteorites are found by, by just the general public, you know, accidentally or, or they hear there's meteorites in our neighborhood. Let's keep our eyes open. And then every once in a while, there's crazy people like me that'll come in, you know, and, and, uh, cause we know, you know, what we're looking for, uh, generally and, um, and we're kind of addicted to the hunt so that you've got that combination out there. And on you tell us about the, the network that you've, uh, that you were telling us about, um, which was looking for the, the fireballs in the first place to help you track, um, when a, uh, when, a, when a meteorite had, had entered the, the atmosphere and, and was heading for us. Yeah, um, we're very lucky, the timing of this Winchcombe meteorite, in that um, the what we call the UK Fireball Alliance, which does sound a little bit like something from a superhero film. Um, the UK Fireball all... Alliance. <laughs> there's a lot of jokes about it in the press and on Twitter and things in the aftermath. Um, so that was actually set up only about 18 months ago. And there was a meeting in London where... It was a brilliant mixture of academics and amateur astronomers and people who just kind of like 
looking out for shooting stars, all sorts of people in different networks coming together and basically arguing for a day about how on earth do we react when, and it is a case of when, not if, um, the first UK meteorite in a long time happens. And because at that point, there was a few different networks of cameras. There was people, there were amateur astronomer groups who would sort of keep in touch. And it was basically a community decision to meet up and make an action plan for when the big one happens. And very luckily, that meeting was pre-pandemic, but not much pre-pandemic. And they didn't, they formed this alliance, which combined of... Um, so my colleagues at Glasgow make, make the Fireball Network, and they're a branch of the Desert Fireball Network, who are based in Australia, who have really successfully, I think, collected eight meteorites from the desert in Australia based on their camera network um, that tracks them and can triangulate using really clever maths. So we basically got some of their left, like older cameras they've since upgraded they sent to the uk and my colleague luke spent a long time on many roads driving all over the country a couple of years ago putting up these cameras on friendly people's roofs um, and added to that there's the uk meteor observation network um, and that's headed up by ashley king at the natural history museum i think um, and a lot of amateur astronomers get involved with them um, and yeah there's a load of just a load of different people came together and shared all their data and the best thing about it was not just in this alliance, as it were, there was even people's doorbell videos. So, you know, those ring um, doorbell cameras that people have, hundreds of those caught the meteorite on there and they submitted their footage to the UK MON, the UK Meteor Network. That fed into the Fireball Alliance and from hundreds of videos, it was the most observed and recorded meteorite to date in the world because of the number of people who were who saw, saw it and basically recorded it in the um, by letting people know via the Fireball Alliance and via the UK Meteor Network, which meant we had so much data to play with. And that meant we were in this wonderful position of having a really constrained search area, which meant that us academics who were obviously allowed to travel and had the insurance and stuff, because obviously if it hadn't been a pandemic, we could have got people from all over that anyone could have come and searched, right? But being a pandemic, we had to be super safe and super careful. and. We had loads of people contact us and say they wanted to help, but we just, as, as great as it was, we, we couldn't condone anyone traveling from outside the area to help because um, of the situation. So we were really lucky to get loads of footage to constrain it. And, and we just, yeah, had a wonderful few days, but really lucky to have that network set up in time. Does that kind of thing exist in, in America, Steve, when you're searching for, uh, for meteorites? <laughs> It does. Um, there, there is a growing um, network of um, all sky cams that are are set up specifically to catch meteorites, um, or, or meteors that would produce meteorites, not just your normal little flashlights, but the the and and it does both, and it they can be used for weather tracking and that kind of stuff too. So there there are. Um, other uh, residual benefits for having uh, cameras up like that. And, the, and of course, there are dash cams and there are like the doorbell cams that, that was mentioned that will pick up things. Uh, People will, will just be standing somewhere videoing on their phone, you know, doing a TikTok video and the fireball flies over. Um, so uh, that there is, and it's sort of uh, a lot of times that's our first, notice um 
is is all of a sudden uh, someone will throw that up on Twitter or YouTube and 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 it it starts to kind of go viral in our own little networks and so we that gets us um, uh, you know to stop and look and it's all right is a long enough if it's too short it typically burns out. Um, if it's too long, it's usually indicative of space junk coming in and, and it's not worth chasing. Um, but there's kind of a happy zone and it did go deep enough. And then are there more than one camera angles to triangulate? And then are, do people hear a sonic boom? That's a real good hint that you're getting close. Um, goes the GOES uh, network now that uh, chases lightning, um, is able to spot and and record fireballs coming in and that helps a whole lot um and then of course when rocks hit people's houses or cars or driveways and they walk out and go oh what is this that that always uh, helps bring the bullseye in uh, but um you know they're they typically don't land as one rock they usually break up and so where one's found okay now where are the other pieces and um yeah so that's the the challenge on the and and um i have just completed um a youtube video series that basically in just a little over an hour hour and 10 minutes someone can binge watch learn everything they they need to go out and go out and find a meteorite that day or the next day so if someone sees a fireball or they hear of one near them and they want to go find it um one hour's worth and and you can know what you need to know to to go out and get, again it's not rocket science the the key is to uh, eliminate where they are not where they cannot be it zeroes in where they could be and then you just have to get out and walk and, and where do we find this uh, this guide then this this series on on YouTube one hour and and uh, and you're and you're in business where, where do yeah. we find it? Yeah, um, YouTube dot com slash Fireball Steve. Wow, there you go, YouTube dot com slash Fireball Steve, which is a great username. And what is the holy grail for a for a meteorite hunter then? What what would be the is there is there a one particular either type of rock you're looking for or something that we know is out there and has never been found well for me for me it's it, it there's two that would probably i i'd be extremely happy with either one is either a meteorite from mars or a meteorite from the moon um, now, right now, science is, there's a lot of money, there's a lot of hours being spent in laboratories studying Mars because that's where we're going. That's where the focus is. So a new Mars rock has very real scientific value today um, compared to other meteorites. The moon, we have not recovered a lunar meteorite fresh witness fall yet. There's been four, I think, Martians that have been witness fall, maybe five. Um, and, and of course, people go, well, how does a rock come from Mars or moon? If you look at the moon, uh, it is covered in craters and uh, it's been bombarded by asteroids. There's no atmosphere to slow asteroids coming in. When the asteroid hits, it blasts out a crater part of the rock that used to be where the crater is now, gets flung up in to um, the, what 
well, we would have an atmosphere here on the moon. There isn't. So there is not an atmosphere to slow it down going out into space. There is some gravity. If you look on the moon, you can see the spray of rock falling back down, you know, around some of the craters. A lot of that material makes it into space. Um, not so much with Mars, but Mars is closer to the asteroid belt. So uh, historically, it's probably been pummeled quite a bit more than the moon, even though it's not quite as visible. Uh, as far as craters are concerned, and there's also some atmosphere there. But we have Mars rock that's spiraling into the sun that runs into our planet. We have uh, moon rock that has been blasted off the moon that comes to Earth. And uh, so there would be there's something awesome about getting the first lunar witness fall. Um, probably not that scientifically valuable because we know a whole lot about the moon, but um, it, it would be historically awesome. Uh, but Mars right now is, is a good one. And now this one uh, that just landed there, that was carbonaceous chondrite. It used to be a really rare type. We're finding they're not that rare. It seems like a lot of what ends. And it explains also they are some of the more fragile rocks. They tend to ablate away more on the falls. So they will be... Um, They'll, they'll burn up or they'll they'll just turn into little tiny rocks and it's hard to spot them. But um, more of them are, and those, those are scientifically um, uh, significant as well. I was just going to say, because um, my PhD is focused on Martian meteorites and the just what Steve mentioned about how much value these Martian meteorites are. Um, one of the meteorites I study it uh, costs several thousand dollars a gram to buy a piece yep. to study. So my whole PhD is based on less than a gram of Mars because the cost <laughs> of getting the samples is so high. So I have to work out the techniques that maximize the science from so little bits of Mars. But that's really important because in a few years time, we'll do Mars sample return for the first time. So we'll bring pieces of Mars back um, that Perseverance has collected. And we're going to need to know how to make sure those precious samples are studied um, as best as possible whilst retaining it. So, yeah, it's they are magnificent things and we're so lucky to have them. But, yeah, by gosh, are they valuable. And let me point out, it's going to be a little bit more than a couple thousand dollars per gram to bring them back from Mars. So this is still the poor man's um, uh, um, supply here. You know, uh, as much as it costs to go out and find and and uh, there's a process of elimination. There's a lot of ordinary, less special. If I can say that, it's almost like saying who's the ugliest grandchild. It, it It's not that. <laughs> but I mean, any meteorite special, but some are just a little more special than others. And so you have to go through thousands of non-Martian meteorites to find a Mars rock. So um, it really is a, a sorting process. And, um, you know, may, maybe like, uh, you know, what, what does, uh, how many rocks have to be processed through for the crown jewels, to, you know, for something to qualify to join that collection. This is kind of in that category with, uh, from a scientific standpoint. Well, fantastic, and um, it's been a great insight into uh, into the whole world of 
of meteorite hunters, as you say, sort of a, a space version of uh, of Indiana Jones in in some respects. Um, and um, what would be your uh, your sort of number one couple of tips then for anybody who's who's starting out? You've I know we've got your full uh, one hour YouTube series, but what's what's the number one uh, tip from the top, Steve? Well, I, I guess the the main thing to stress uh, when a fireball goes over, it's it's optically uh, uh, an optical illusion. Everybody thinks it's much closer than it really is, and um, yeah, and usually, you know, so so like a, a fireball will will burn out five to ten miles up in the air. So typically, if it burned out near you, it's right above you. Well, if it looks like it went over that tree or on the other side of that building, it's just, you know, a mile away, whatever. Um, you, no, it's, it's a long way. If you saw it go over the horizon, it's almost like the moon. You, you, you can stand under a tree and it looks like the moon is caught in the branches. It's not. It's a long ways away. So that's why the triangulating is important. But that doesn't mean you can't find one. You know, it, 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 it now if you sit at home, you're not going to find one. But, you know, unless you go to eBay and, you know, bid on one or something. But um, if you, um, but, but if you get out there, it's doable. And I've been with over a hundred people when they found their first meteorite. So um, I, I want to encourage people, be smart about it. Don't, don't go looking for, you know, um, burning grass, um, you know, in a hole with a <laughs> smoldering steam coming out of it. That's not going to happen. Uh, be smart about it. Take the hour or take a few hours, you know, learn about it. But but then it's just a matter of making sure you have a good pair of shoes so you don't get blisters. Very wise advice there from Steve Arnold, one of the meteorite men, which you may be familiar with uh, off the TV or indeed on uh, on YouTube. Uh, at this point, I'd like to bring Naz in, one of the astronomers from Kielder Observatory. Naz, what would you like to ask Steve? And I think everyone will really want to know, where is the craziest place you've ever found a meteorite? <laughs> craziest place um in 2003 there was a, a a meteorite that landed in the south suburbs of chicago uh, it's called the park forest meteorite and i found one on a baseball diamond a baseball infield that was kind of cool i found meteorites in cemeteries that that's i have this attraction to cemeteries there's just something first of all they're gridded out so you you can tell what where you've looked and where you haven't because you walk between the tombstones and they're usually the grass is usually kept pretty short you know um now i don't know about in the uk i i i'm pretty certain you know there's there's in in the u.s i know it's there are laws against using metal detectors in in cemeteries um makes sense why um so it's if it's a visual hunt that's and i but but i have i've, I've found two or three three meteorites in two or three different cemeteries so every time i see a cemetery and i'm on a hunt it's like oh, okay let's pull over and also you don't, have to, you don't have to ask permission from someone you know because it's private property because generally it's private so uh that, that's that's two of them just um just a quick question for on here as well are you hoping to get samples from perseverance in 10 years time oh 
Yes, I'd love to. Um, that's that's a wonderful thought. Um, I, <laughs> gosh, yeah. Um, a lot of hoops have to be jumped through to get to that point. Not least finishing my PhD and then getting a postdoc and all these sort of things. But um, yeah, if I can stay in the field to be one of the people that gets to study one of those samples that's brought back. Yeah, God, I can't even begin to imagine how wonderful that would be. And also scary, I'm quite clumsy. Um, and those will be totally priceless. <laughs> so, but hopefully the work I'm doing just now is to kind of gear up for that and make sure that when that happens, we were, you know, exactly what best science to do and how to, you know, minimize the risk of losing it or breaking it or something. Um, if people really want the full meteorite man experience, Steve Arnold, they can join you and Jeff Notkin from the show in real life to go trekking somewhere in the world looking for uh, looking for bits of meteorites. They can have the full Meteorite Man experience, can't they? Tell us about how people can get involved in that if that's something they want to do in future. Once or twice a year, uh, I team up with uh, Jeff Notkin, my, my um, co-host on the TV series. We have a joint venture of uh, called Meteorite Adventures where we take people out. And we end up usually, uh, lately it's been going to Chile or... Um, Morocco, uh, but uh, we we take people out and we go on meteorite hunting expeditions, and um, those are a lot of fun. And and so once we get through COVID, we'll uh, know you know when and where we can do our next venture. But that's a a little more of a um, intentional effort instead of sitting around waiting for a fireball to happen. We try to go wh where the rocks are and 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 have fun. There's a camaraderie. There's a kindred spirit of being out there with people that share uh, your passion, but also have different interests, you know, from uh, what brought them into the field. And so everybody's a little bit different. It's always fun to be under the stars around a campfire uh, or, or around a, a, a feast of a table or a, a pub somewhere um, uh, sharing stories. Well, Steve Arnold, one of the Meteorite Men, it's been great speaking to you today. Thanks for joining us on uh, on this episode. And, of course, if you do ever find yourself hunting meteorites in the northeast of England, which I know is uh, fairly um, slim possibilities of that, but you never know. You're, you're always welcome at Kielder Observatory to uh, to come and stare into space with us. We actually sell meteorites at the observatory as well, so you can, you can come oh. check out our, our meteorites if you'd like. <laughs> Uh, very good. We also have a uh, we have a little little bit of um a little bit of Mars in a frame, a little bit of Mars dust in a frame, and we put it in this frame so that people can stand on it and say they got to stand on Mars. Ah, how fun! <laughs> I I I used to run a a brick and mortar meteorite store here and ran it full time, and I had a piece of the moon that I did the same thing, a slice in some plexiglass, and I and I had a I had a recording of Neil Armstrong's you know famous first first first, uh, and so people could they could hit the button you know and kind of the staticky uh, Neil Armstrong as they're standing there, and so yes, it's it's. It's kind of um, how how simple little creative things are, are cute, but it uh, people seem to like them a lot. So that's great. People get a walk on Mars. Yeah. Well, Steve and Anya, thank you very much for joining us in this episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast and enlightening us about the world of being a meteorite hunter and um, all the things that we need to do in order to, to keep our eyes peeled. It's, it's been great fun chatting with you and uh, 
all the best for your for your future adventures. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. Totally enjoyed this. Our thanks to Steve Arnold, one of the meteorite men. Fireball Steve, if you want to check him out on his YouTube channel. And he's also uh, knocking around on all the other social media platforms as well. And also my thanks to Anya O'Brien, one of the uh, PhD students and one of the people who was uh, out looking from Glasgow University for uh, signs of the meteorite that they then found in Gloucestershire. And her journey to that point all began with a visit to Kielder Observatory some years ago as well. So you never know where a trip to Kielder Observatory is going to lead you to. My thanks also to Naz and to Dan from Kielder Observatory. And we'll be back with you in May with hopefully better news as things, fingers crossed, reopening. And we can start telling you more about some of the sessions that we've got planned and uh, some of the things that we've seen when we've been open with the general public as well. And we hope that you can be part of it. In the meantime, keep up to date with everything that's happening at Kielder Observatory online. KielderObservatory.org is the website and search for Kielder Observatory on all the major social media platforms including Instagram, Twitter and of course Facebook and we will see you very soon on the next episode of the Kielder Observatory podcast.